I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. As I mentioned in my newsletter, I'm going to be doing a series on texts from Handel's Messiah. And was happy to discover that John Newton did the same thing. So uh, certainly will not compare myself to that uh, great preacher and hymn writer. Uh, but it's uh, not... Not unusual, is it, for one who loved to sing praises and loved to write hymns uh, to be taken by the music of the Messiah and want to delve into the scripture passages that uh, Jennings selected for that, that piece of music. We're jumping into the middle, in a sense, of Isaiah. Now, we're, we're over halfway through the book. Uh, it's the 40th chapter, so we've, we've got 39 chapters coming before this in Isaiah. Uh, some people have, have made note of the interesting fact that all those chapters and verses were put into the Bible long after the text was written. It's interesting that there are 39 chapters in Isaiah. Previous to this, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 chapters beginning at chapter 40, and there are 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, I don't know that we can claim any inspired significance for that, but it is clear that we're at a turning point in the book. You, you probably remember the, the awe-inspiring call that Isaiah experienced that he records in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Perhaps one of my favorite passages, maybe it's a favorite passage of yours, you remember when, when Isaiah sees Yahweh high and lifted up. And it's a, it's a sort of a combination of a temple and a palace scene. And, and you, you get the sense that, that Isaiah is looking up into the spiritual realm, but God is so awesome, so magnificent, that, that all Isaiah can see is just the bottom of his robe, which fills the temple. And, and you remember that, that not only does he see something, he hears something, he even feels something. As the heavenly beings shout with voices that rock those huge stones in the temple, holy, 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 is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you remember Isaiah's response to that, don't you? Woe is me. I am undone. Literally, I, I am disintegrated. I am falling apart because I'm a man of sinful lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of, unseen, of sinful lips. And my eyes have seen Yahweh, God of the host, the armies. Whenever people begin to see the holiness of God, 
They're brought into touch with their own sin. That is so important to remember. The holiness of God makes sinners aware of their sin. And that's really the theme of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, isn't it? It's a word of judgment. Isaiah is given a commission to preach judgment. In fact, in that initial scene, his calling is is stated almost exclusively in terms of judgment. And so by the time we get to chapter 40, we've had essentially 39 chapters of judgment. Chapter 39 is a narrative interlude in Isaiah's prophecies, which he has an interaction with the king of that particular time, King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is sort of a mixed bag. You know, he's he's does some good things. But in chapter 9, we don't see his good side. <laughs> chapter 39, he, is, he has just entertained envoys from a land far away that he'd never met before. He's entertained representatives of the court in Babylon. They've heard that he was deathly ill, and God granted him healing, and so they've come to congratulate him, they say. And Hezekiah very proudly shows off the wealth of his kingdom. All that which David and Solomon had accumulated, he shows it off. Isaiah comes to him afterwards and said, Who were those guys? And he tells Hezekiah, men from Babylon, that that kingdom that seems so far away to you, they will come and plunder everything you showed to them. And your own descendants will be taken into captivity and made to serve in Babylon. Sadly, Hezekiah says, well, that's good news because it won't happen on my watch. That's coming far in the future. There'll be peace and prosperity in my time. What a sad, sad response from one who is supposed to be a shepherd of God's people, shepherd king. They had many such poor shepherds. People of God have suffered under many bad leaders over the years. But the Lord, 
has a plan. And although earthly rulers fail, the Lord does not. And so having, having given that terrible word of judgment that's going to result in the devastation of Judah and Jerusalem, terrible suffering of the people one day, Isaiah is given a message of hope. And that's what we have in our text. So I want you to have in mind that message of judgment that's come before. And now here, hear this incredible message of hope. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level on the rough places of plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Isaiah has a penchant under divine inspiration, to use repeated words or terms. That's relatively rare in Hebrew poetry or prophecy. There's a lot of parallelism, parallel thoughts, but almost invariably it's expressed in different terms that lends to the beauty and the complexity of Hebrew poetry. But Isaiah has this habit of repeating words, there are a number of examples of it in, in the book that we could go to. Perhaps the most relevant would be the one that comes from Isaiah chapter 6 in God's command to Isaiah. He gives him a message. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, and literally he says there, hear to hear. He uses the same word twice. Hear to hear, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, that is, see to see, but do not perceive. In other words, Isaiah, your message is to keep telling the people to listen, and they're going to keep closing their ears. Keep telling them to see, and they're going to keep shutting their eyes. And the more you preach, the more they will reject your message. And the heavier will be the punishment on them. Now, in our text, there's a much more positive use of that doubling, isn't there? Comfort. Comfort. Are you in need of comfort today? 
This world is not a comfortable place to live, is it, sometimes? Sin has made this world a very uncomfortable world. I'm sure you've experienced the uncomfortability of your own sin. You've had that uncomfortable feeling inside when you're convicted of something wrong. This world tries to offer comfort to you, to other people. But, it, but it's never, never true comfort, is it? If you've lived very long, you've, you've had the experience of looking forward to some experience, to some possession, to, to something that will bring you great happiness, will bring you comfort, only to find it doesn't come. Or if you do get that, thing that you really desire. If you, if you enter into that relationship you'd hope for, have that experience that you'd long for, somehow it just doesn't quite measure up. And it's not too long before you feel empty inside again. And maybe even worse. There's only one who can give true comfort. And that is the God of all comfort, isn't it? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was none to comfort them. Psalm 69, 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. There's no comfort in this world. There's nothing that's good enough to really comfort your heart the way that it longs to be comforted. But before we, before we think about that comfort a little more, I want you to realize that, that there is, in a sense, a blessing in grief. There's a blessing in mourning. There's a blessing when, when you're made aware that this life isn't enough. That the people actually to be most pitied in the world are those who think they're very comfortable. Those who are enjoying the comfort of this life, they are really the ones to be most pitied because they're deluded. So even the fact that you don't feel comfort at times, even the fact that you grieve, that you mourn at times, that's really a blessing. Because you have begun to realize the insufficiency of this life. You've begun to realize that you are created for more than this world 
can give you. That, that, that you have longings too, too grand, too deep for anything in this world to satisfy. And isn't that part of the reason why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You can look your need full in the face. You can acknowledge your grief and your mourning, and especially that mourning that you have for your own sin, that sin that you've committed against other people, that you've committed against, against the Lord, those things that you wish with all your heart you could take back or undo. You can look at that full in the face because you know the God who comforts. You know the one who gives comfort to those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I know, O Yahweh, that your rules are righteous, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servants. Oh, the, the Psalms are filled with examples of that, but let's look at a few from Isaiah himself. Isaiah 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. Here's another example of Isaiah's doubling of terms in Isaiah 51, verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, he says in chapter 52, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. But of course, you must have thought of this passage from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh that he may be glorified. God, Isaiah says to his people here and to us, is a God, he says, comfort. Comfort my people. What a wonderful word that is. My people. In that call scene in Isaiah chapter 6, God says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, hear and keep on hearing. 
seeing, keep on seeing. But don't you love the fact that it's not this people now, it's my people. God comforts his people. If you're the child of God, he longs to comfort you. If you belong to Christ, God is eager to comfort you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. What he literally says here, and I love this, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart. God wants to speak to your heart. He wants the words not just to go into your ears and into your brain. He wants them to go right down into your heart and to soothe the pain, the loss, the grief there. This is the terminology of, uh, of one comforting a loved one. Okay, there, there are beautiful examples of this. Ruth uses this in, in, in speaking of the care that Boaz showed to her. The prophet uses this in speaking of, uh, of the Lord wooing his people like a bridegroom woos his bride. He says he will speak to her heart. Speak to Jerusalem's heart. And of course, it, you know that this isn't just a geographic location here, Jerusalem. And it's not just people that have been born in Jerusalem. Susan and I had an Arabic tour guide in, in, uh, in Jerusalem who was born there. But this isn't talking about that geographic place, is it? Jerusalem here is a, it is a picture, a representative of God's people of every age. So if you're a child of God, he is, he, is telling, he is telling us here to speak to your heart. Speak to your heart. So God wants to comfort you. He wants to speak to your heart. He doesn't want you to miss it. And so the next line says, and cry to her. Call it out. Shout it. Don't let them miss it. This is too good to miss. You want to hear this good news, the gospel, the good news that God comforts his people. He speaks tenderly to their heart. He calls them to himself. He does all that for his people. Now, how can that be? His people are sinners. He spent 39 chapters convincing us that we're sinners. How then can he suddenly speak of comfort and tender words and good news? Well, it's because, go on and look at the rest of verse 2 there. Here are the reasons. That, that, that. It's giving you the reasons. How is it can you, that you can speak comfort, speak to the heart, cry good news? Because her warfare is ended. Her, her time of conflict is over. The oppression that comes 
When the invading army comes in and destroys everything you've got and takes away everything and drags you off into slavery, that is ended. It's come to an end. And pardoned is her iniquity. That sin that, that weighed her down, that guilt that weighs on your heart is pardoned. And the finality is emphasized in those last two lines there. She, that is Jerusalem, that is the people of God, has received from the hand of Yahweh, directly from his hand, double for all our sins. Now that expression there isn't to be read that God is somehow an unjust judge. He goes overboard in his punishment. I mean... That's certainly not the case. But I think, following John Calvin and others, what this is saying is that there has been a fullness to God's judgment. Okay, so, so the idea of doubling is saying it most certainly, most certainly has been accomplished. So all three of these phrases emphasize the fact that that something is ended and something new has come. Because the judgment has ended, grace has been extended. Now, how can that be? How can that be? Well, you know, verse 3 is telling you again. It's because of Because of that message, a voice cries. Messenger isn't important. I hope you don't get real hung up on the messengers of the gospel. Don't pay any attention to us, okay? We're here today, gone tomorrow. We're fallible people just like you. But will you please listen to the message? what John the Baptist says, isn't it? Don't pay attention to me. What are you coming out and asking me if I'm the Messiah for? I'm just a voice. But look at what the voice calls out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A change has happened because God is coming. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference between judgment and grace, isn't it? That God comes to his people. He's not leaving them to languish, but he is coming. So you have this beautiful imagery in in, in verse 4 of the way being prepared. There should be nothing to impede his travel. And so every valley is going to be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become a plain, it shall become level, the rough places a plain. We're going to build a highway so that there's actually no impediment at all for Yahweh to come and rescue his people. The imagery here may be calling to mind God coming on Mount Sinai to his people there in the wilderness coming 
to bring them into covenant relationship with him. So it is the coming of Yahweh, coming of the Lord, the coming of God to his people that makes that message of comfort, that message to your heart, that gospel of good news. It's the, it's, that's what makes that possible. You can't get this yourself. Sinners cannot find comfort, find the satisfaction of their hearts. They can't hear the good news they need unless God comes to them. And, of course, he has come to them, hasn't he? This is why this passage is important in the New Testament. Because the gospel writer said, God has come. He's come beyond our wildest dreams. No one would have ever imagined it but he's actually become human. He's come in the flesh. He's come with that news of comfort. He's come to speak to your heart. He's come to give you the good news that you've been longing for all your life. And so the culmination, culminating scene there is in verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Perhaps this brings to your mind some of the Psalms, that the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, there's a glory of God that's seen in creation. But it is far surpassed. I dare say it is far surpassed by the glory of God in redemption. It is a glorious thing that God created everything that is out of nothing. That is a glorious thing. We, we ought to glorify God every day we wake up and realize we're somewhere. <laughs> because we're somewhere, there is something, because there's a God, we ought to glorify God for that. But in redemption, God didn't just call something from nothing. He made saints out of sinners. He took hearts that were defiled and made them clean. He took those whose works, best works, were just filthy rags, and he clothed them in righteousness. God is glorified in his redemptive work. He works salvation in you. He's bringing glory to himself. He will one day present you for the throne and say, here she is, my glorious bride. You, you, you sinners, you. With no claim on God's favor at all are going to become the delight of his eye. The glory of the Lord is revealed in that, and everybody's going to see it. There will come a day when all creation, all creation will witness his redemptive work and the culmination of that work in the glorification of his people. 
Can you be certain about that? You most certainly can. Look at the last line of verse 5. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. This is the word of God that is more certain than the pew that you're sitting in. The word of the Lord is more real than your own physical body, than your own experience of this world. The word of God has a reality that transcends this created order because this created order is passing away, isn't it? The very pew you sit in, if the Lord tarries, will one day decay and rot. Your body will wear out, but the word of the Lord will endure forever, and it's in his word that you want to put your confidence, not in anything else. And that word, again, to remind you, is a word of comfort. It's a word that speaks to your heart, salvation from your sin, cleansing from your guilt, and clothing in the righteousness of Christ. That last line really takes us back to the first line, doesn't it? Mouth of Yahweh takes us back to the first line, says your God. This is the message of God. But I want you to notice something in passing, something we don't get in, in the English. Comfort there is an imperative. You can see that. It's a command. Who's being commanded? Well, it would be logical for us to say, well, Isaiah is being commanded. Right? I mean, God's telling him, comfort my people. And certainly Isaiah does just that. He's delivering us this word, doesn't he? And the word of God, I, I pray, has already been speaking to you, comfort, as you've been thinking about it these last few minutes. But it's very interesting that this is not the singular imperative, you comfort. It's the plural We don't have a way to say that very well in English. The closest, perhaps, is that southern habit that I grew up of saying, you all. Okay. When you're talking to more than one person, you say, you all. And you say, you all comfort. Do you hear me? You all comfort. You should be a comfort to other people. You should comfort one another. I know you have great needs for comfort, but you'll actually find your needs for comfort satisfied by seeking to comfort others. We, we won't go right now, but we could go to passages in the New Testament where, where Paul very clearly says, you, and Peter says something very similar. You, it's because you've suffered and received God's comfort that now you can comfort others. God does not want his comfort to stay in you. He wants you to give that comfort to others. 
And in fact, that will be the real sign that you've got it. The real sign that you've received the comfort of God will be when you give it away to somebody else. You all comfort. You all comfort my people. You all speak tenderly. Speak to the heart of one another. You all cry out, insist on people hearing the good news that they need to hear. What a wonderful privilege, then, is ours, isn't it? Because God can speak through us. Isn't that incredible? Who gave you the right to speak for God? Well, God does right here. He says, I'm giving you the authority to speak comfort into someone else's life. Open your eyes. Look for somebody that needs some comfort. Give it to them. See, past the outward shell, past that church face that everybody puts on before they walk in the door, see past that, speak to the heart. Don't just speak to the face. Speak to the heart. Ask God to give you words that speak to the heart. And you know what those words will be? They'll be words motivated by love, won't they? Doesn't mean it's always going to be a happy thing. Sometimes love speaks to hearts, words of conviction. But speak words of love that reach to one another's hearts. Speak that good news that's worth crying out that good news that you've received in Jesus Christ. Uh, what a wonderful thing it is to hear that God has comforted us in Jesus Christ and then to speak that comfort into others' lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you've been so loving and so gracious to us we certainly did not, do not, in and of ourselves, deserve your comfort. We deserve your condemnation. We deserve everything in those first 39 chapters. We don't deserve your tender words, because often our hearts are hard, not receptive. We don't deserve your good news because we're the, we're the ones that so often have made the bad news. But you have given us all of this, Lord. You've given it to us by the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He went without comfort on the cross so that we could be comforted. People's hearts were hardened against him, and, and he was mocked and scorned and tortured and killed. 
so that he could speak tenderly to our hearts. And he took all the bad news of our sin, all of it, upon himself, and gave instead to us the good news of his righteousness. Oh Lord, help us to remember these things and be a generous, comforting people, speaking to the hearts of one another and to others the good news of God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.